Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We have, if you've been around, uh, you know we've been walking through uh, a short sermon series that we do most falls, not every fall, but most falls. We walk through our vision and our mission statements just to refocus on what God has called us to as a church. Our vision is about who God wants to shape us to be. And our vision, I won't test you, but three words really highlight our vision, deeper, closer, bolder, that, that God is calling us to be uh, young and old, uh, men and women that, that are growing deeper in intimacy with Christ. We looked at uh, verses in Matthew where Jesus calls us to come to him when we are weary of trying to make ourselves acceptable and find rest in him and to, to take his yoke upon us and learn from him and to grow in obedience as we grow as his disciples walking in fellowship with him daily. The second week we looked at closer, the fact that God saves us individually, we come to that place, we're called to repent and believe, but when we do that, we we don't follow Jesus independently or alone, no, we're we're enveloped into his family and and we experience that in a local church, we're called to, to grow close in relationships with one another. There's so much that we are called to do in scripture that we cannot do by ourselves, Loving others, caring for others, forgiving others. There's so much. We, we, the life we are called into, the life we are saved into is a life together. And last week we looked at this, God's desire to make us bold and we discovered that, that he is the source of that boldness. This isn't something we muster up inside us, but through his spirit he works in us and he gives us great boldness that is grounded in what he has done, who he is, and who we are in him. And he empowers us by his spirit to live as his missionary people. This morning, we want to look at our, our mission statement, which is on the wall behind me, making Jesus known. And that really is something that, that impacts our whole vision, feeds into that, that as we grow in Christ, as we grow in obedience and godliness, people will see Jesus. As we love one another and care for one another and forgive one another in the community, people will look at us and they'll see Jesus. And as God empowers us to live boldly for him on mission, people will see Jesus. The whole vision feeds into this mission of making Jesus known. And so that's what we're going to focus on The year I was in grade 11, my parents separated. I'm one of four sons, an older brother and younger brothers who are identical twins. And uh, my dad moved out. My older brother moved with him so he wouldn't be alone. They got a, a suite not too far away in the same city, and they lived there for, I think, about eight or nine months. Summer came, and uh, we were living in the Toronto area at the time, and my dad got a transfer from the Toronto airport where he worked to Vancouver, and he and all three of my brothers moved. I stayed in Ontario with my mom. I didn't have a good relationship with her, but I wanted to finish high school. I was going into my senior year, and so I decided to stay there. But those were really hard, hard days, sad days, lots of tears. I was desperately lonely. And that fall, that November of my senior year, You might go, how does this fit? There was a movie that came out, Home Alone. Many of you have seen it. I went and saw Home Alone, and I I loved it. I laughed so hard. It was was an experience of just great joy, laughing with friends. A few weeks after I saw it, my younger 
brothers, twins, uh, flew back to Ontario to spend Christmas with us, and their birthday happens a few days after Christmas, and so for their birthday, I decided, hey, I'm going to take them to this movie. I I wanted to share with them the joy, the delight, the laughter that I had experienced, and and I, I get sentimental about that movie. I still remember standing by the Penn Center in front of the theater between my little brothers who tower above me at 6'4". I remember sitting between them in the theater. And I remember the joy, the delight of just hearing them laugh and just having that joy together. What I want to help us all see this morning is that the mission that God has entrusted to us is is to live our lives in such a way that others around us would come to know the joy, the delight, the hope that we have in Christ. Through Christ's love, through His grace, that they would see the glory of God and join us in giving glory to God. And to that end, we're going to look at four verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. Before I read them, a little bit of information about this letter. Uh, 1 Peter is one of the general epistles. It's called that because it's not addressed to one specific church like the letters to Corinth or the letters to Thessalonica or the letters to uh, to, to, uh, some of the other churches. This is written to the churches in in a number of areas in what is modern-day Turkey. It was written by the Apostle Peter, uh, probably from Rome, around the year 64, uh, near the time when he would have been executed under Nero's, uh, his violence against the church that happened in 64, so sometime leading up to that. The purpose of the letter, uh, Peter writes to encourage these believers, to encourage the churches, because they are either just beginning to experience suffering as God's people, or suffering is right around the corner. It's it's about to come, uh, one of those cases. And so Peter writes to encourage them about how in this current, in this present reality, or the reality that is about to break in on them. And, And so One other thing to note is that he's not speaking in this letter about how to live in the context of the church. 1 Corinthians has lots to say about worship and loving one another and how how we're supposed to do that. 1 Peter is about how how we live in the world, in a world that is hostile to Jesus, in a world that is hostile to us. So with that in mind, would you read with me 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 12. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. I want to walk through these verses with you and look at three things. First, our identity, who we are. Second, our context, where we are. And third, our aim, what we are all about. Okay, so our identity, our context, our aim, who we are, where we are, and what we're all about. So first, our identity, who we are. We need to recognize here as we jump into this letter at chapter 2, verse 9, that, that Peter's argument has already been going on, and, and he has been describing 
uh, the church, and he's been talking about Jesus, and he's described in the verses just leading up to this that Jesus is the cornerstone. Many of you will know what a cornerstone is. It's a special stone, often decorative in a building, and, and but in, in construction, a cornerstone would be very significant, the most significant block or brick in a building. Jesus is described as the cornerstone and that the church is, the believers are living stones that together they are being built into a spiritual house, that is into the temple, the temple of God, the place where God is present. That is an important theme throughout the biblical story. If we go all the way back to Genesis where Jacob is running for his life from his brother Esau and he comes to a place and he lays down. Many of you know the story. He puts his head down on a rock and goes to sleep and God gives him a a dream, a vision. He sees a ladder reaching from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And when he wakes up, he names that place Bethel, which means house of God, the place of God's presence. Moses, after Jacob's family grows and ends up in Egypt, uh, Moses run away. He encounters the presence of God in a burning bush that does not burn up. God, under Moses' leadership, leads his people to freedom out of Egypt into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, and God's presence goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They come to Mount Sinai, and God's presence is at the top of the mountain. Moses goes up, and he encounters God. He gets the Ten Commandments there, and God eventually God gives them instructions to build a tabernacle, a tent, and The Ark of the Covenant is constructed, and then God's presence comes down from Sinai and fills the temple. God is present in the the tabernacle. He's present above the Ark of the Covenant. Eventually, Solomon builds a temple, and we see there, too, God's presence fills the temple. And then in the book of Ezekiel, God's people, because of their sin, are going to go into exile, and, and Ezekiel tells us that the Spirit, the presence of God, departs. God's presence leaves. And so when God's people return after the exile, they continue to wait for, long for God's presence. And, and he's not there, and there's these years of silence. And so when Jesus shows up, in the beginning of John's Gospel, Philip goes and, and calls Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, come, we found the one, the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, you know, what good thing could come out of Nazareth? And, and Jesus sees Nathaniel and says, ah, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip talked to you when you were sitting under the fig tree, I, I knew you, I saw you. And Nathaniel's blown away. And, and, and Jesus says, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus there is hearkening back to the Jacob story and saying, now I am the place of God's presence. God is present in Christ. And what is truly amazing is that when Christ dies and is resurrected and ascends to heaven, Jesus says that he will pour out his presence on all who believe in him. He will pour out his Holy Spirit, which means that you and I, as those who have repented and put our faith in Jesus, we are now, individually and corporately, we are the place of God's presence. That's what Peter has just been saying, that Christ is the cornerstone. We are the presence of God. And and with that in mind, now let's turn to what he says in verse 9. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to churches, to believers. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. That that is language that is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of Israel, the, the, the people with whom God was said to be present. 
What is being asserted is that these Christians, these men and women who have repented and put their faith in Jesus, now have this status as God's special people, a people created for his name, for the glory of his name. And remember, Israel's call was never just about them. God God was not just going to save only Israel. God, back in Genesis 12, God called Abram and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. God's vision has always been global. And now the church, God's people, have this this status as God's special people, as, as those who live for his name, a people for his name. Now none of this, none of what is true, none of what is said about the identity of those who are in Christ, none of that is based on our performance for God, on their performance for God. It's, Christianity is not about cleaning yourself up and making yourself acceptable. No, it is about coming to God as we are. Those of you who have been with us through the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, remember how the Beatitudes begin. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes, and the very first Beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come with empty hands, empty pockets. Blessed are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have nothing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's, this, this is... This is about God's grace at heart. The Christian faith is a self-giving, the self-giving love of God for sinful, broken rebels. A little bit later in, in this chapter, chapter 2, a little bit later, Peter is going to say this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds you've been healed. That we need to hear. Our identity is grounded It is rooted, it is anchored to what Christ has done. He himself bore our sins, my sin and your sin, in his body, on the cross, by his wounds. By his wounds we're healed. Not by our own efforts, not by our own ability to clean ourselves up. God in his mercy absorbs the penalty we deserve and in his grace, lavishes, he lavishes his undeserved grace, his favor upon us. This is what drove the religious types of Jesus' day crazy. Jesus hung out with people whose lives were a mess, with a riffraff. Jesus, Jesus attracted prostitutes. He, he attracted hated tax collectors, floats to Rome. Cheaters, thieves. Jesus attracted people whose lives were a disaster. They were drawn to him. They, they, they were drawn to him like iron filings to a magnet. Every time someone comes to Jesus and trusts Jesus, their identity is, is radically changed. They were under God's judgment, children of wrath, the New Testament says, and through faith in Christ they are adopted as daughters and sons of the Father. And all of heaven celebrates. All of heaven throws a party. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this, I have meditated enough on Jesus' stories of grace to let their meaning filter through. 
Still, each time I confront their astonishing message, I realize how thickly the veil of ungrace obscures my view of God. A housewife jumping up and down in glee over the discovery of a lost coin is not what naturally comes to mind when I think of God, yet that is the image Jesus insisted upon. Isn't that amazing? What's God like? God's like a housewife jumping up and down in glee because she found a coin. That's the image Jesus insisted upon. Luke 15, if you don't believe me. And speaking of God's response to one sinner who repents, Henry Nouwen writes this, God rejoices. God rejoices, not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering come to an end, not because thousands of people have converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. All who repent, all who believe, find themselves suddenly on the inside, adopted, forgiven, washed, pure, and clothed with Christ's perfection, and all of heaven rejoices. All of heaven rejoices. That's what Paul, Peter is asserting here. He's saying to these believers, you are God's. You belong to God. You are his special people. You were lost, and you're found. You have a new identity. But there's more that Peter goes on and says here. I want you to look with me at verse 11. He carries on. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. He adds those two terms to all that he has said previously. He calls us foreigners. He calls us exiles. What does that mean? What is he saying? The term foreigner gets at the fact that we are not from here. We don't, we don't belong here. This world is not our home. We are sojourners. We, we, we don't belong. We don't fit the cultural customs around us will be different. They'll be foreign to us. When I was in India three and a half years ago, I'd never been there. I hadn't been to a lot of places. And I remember one moment, one particular experience. I was with Chris, who I'd traveled there with, and John, who was an Indian. He was uh, the leader of the network of church planners that we were visiting and traveling with. And we were out at a, at a construction site where they were building a ministry center, and, and John asked me to pray, and so I did, and I raised my hand, and I was praying, and, and uh, John walked up behind me, and he pushed my left hand down, and he pushed my right hand up. And later on, he explained, when you pray, pray with your right hand up or both hands up, not just your left, because there's things that you do in India with your left hand, and so you don't do that. I, I had no idea. I was a foreigner. I didn't, I didn't know the customs, the culture. And so we're described as foreigners. We're, we're described similarly as exiles, that, that we are not at home. We are a displaced people. We are living in a place that is not, not our home, not where we put down roots. We, our, our true home is in another place. It is another kingdom. I've often spoke of the fact that as the church, we, we are an outpost of heaven. We are, we are living the life of the future in the present, right? That comes through the Sermon on the Mount. We're living the life of the future. We are gospelized. We are citizens of, of, of the kingdom of heaven. We are living the life of the future in the present as an outpost of heaven. Now let me 
is this is a significant assertion that Peter is making, and it's important that we grasp this. Does, does this reality, that you and I in Christ are foreigners, that we are exiles, does this reality that our lives here are temporary, does that shape our lives? Or are we shaped more by our culture around us? Are, are we pursuing the same things that those around us who do not know Jesus are pursuing? Are we pouring out our, our energy for the things that those around us are pouring their energy out for? Money? Status? Success? Pleasures? What does it mean for you and I to say... What does it mean for you and I to grasp that we are foreigners, that we are exiles, that we are citizens of another kingdom? What does that mean? R.C. Sproul writes this, a big problem in the church today is that even after people are converted to Christ, they still take their marching orders from what is acceptable and expected in the culture. We must remember that we do not belong to the culture. As Paul wrote, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The way to get a new mind is not by paying attention to Gallup polls, but by paying attention to the mind of Christ so that we begin to think like Jesus. No matter what everyone else does or approves, if Jesus does not approve, then we cannot. We need to remember who we are, citizens of heaven, and our lives are supposed to demonstrate that as we take our cue not from this world, but from heaven itself. We are foreigners and exiles. That's part of our identity as those who are in Christ, and that ought to shape our lives so that we look different, so that we are different than those around us. So these are a number of things that Peter says about who we are, God's special people, a people for his name, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, foreigners and exiles. Let's turn secondly to our context, where we are. One could come to the conclusion, if one were not careful, that in light of who we are, in light of all that, that Peter has said, all that Christ is saying through Peter here, especially in light of the, the, the last things that I said, that, that we are foreigners and exiles, that, that we don't belong, that we should withdraw from the world, that we should retreat into the wilderness, into the north, Let's go set up a commune. Let's, let's retreat from the context of this sinful, fallen, broken world. That is what happened during the first centuries of the church. Many retreated from the cities, and there were many convents and monasteries formed, monastic orders formed and established where people withdrew. But I would contend that that's not what we're called to. That's not what Peter's intending when he calls us foreigners and exiles. No, Peter makes it clear that we're not to do that. We're not to abandon the world. We're not to withdraw. We're not to be shaped by it, to be sure. We're to be shaped by Christ. We're to be shaped by the Word of Christ, by His Spirit working in us. We are to pursue Christ. We are to pursue a life of growing obedience, or a life of, of increasing sanctification. He says, abstain from sinful desires. He says that here. We're to pursue obedience and holiness. But, but our growth in obedience, our growth in holiness, listen to this, is to happen before a watching world. Before a watching world. 
Listen to this. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. We are to live out our Christian faith, our life of discipleship, of growing in obedience, of putting to death the deeds of darkness. We're to live that out before a watching world that does not know Christ. That is, that is significant. I want you to notice this, that, that Peter speaks about uh, a critical thing he says about our context, that, that is that we, we live out our lives as disciples also in the context of hostility. Now, Peter here is not speaking of the hostility of the, the Roman world around him. And there was, remember, he's writing to these churches who are either experiencing suffering already or will shortly. Peter is writing as one who will be executed by Rome in the not-too-distant future. By this time, there are Christians who have lost their lives. There is hostility and violence from the world against the church. But that's not what he's speaking about. Look, he, he speaks about sinful desires which wage war against our soul. That is, within us, we, we need to put to death these deeds of darkness. He speaks to our battle with sin, our our battle to overcome habits from our old life, impulses from from the flesh or from the world. See, here's what I want you to to hear, and and we need to grasp this. I already spoke to this a little bit. Before we come to Christ, we we are in darkness. We are spiritually dead. We are slaves to sin. We are under God's wrath. When we come to Christ and repent and believe, we are in the light. We are made alive. We are slaves of righteousness. We are children of God. Our identity changes. Now, even when we are saved and we are over here on this side, if you will, imagine a line here. This is who we were in darkness, spiritually dead, slaves to sin, children of wrath. We're saved. Now we're in the light. We're alive. We're children. We're slaves to righteousness. We're children of God. There's lots of other descriptors that we can put on either side of the ledger, but imagine that. When, when we are saved, this is who we are. This is our new identity. Now sometimes, as those who are saved, we live like we used to. We do some of the things we used to do. But we are not jumping back and forth. Our identity doesn't change. We are in Christ. We are redeemed. And this is what's true about us. And so we need to be attentive in this, in this battle with those old habits that we need to put to death. The whole Christian life could be summed up that we are learning to live in a way that is congruent with who we are. Learning to be who we already are. There is this battle that we face. This pursuit of obedience and holiness that we are in, that we're called to. Not in order that we would be saved. Our salvation is already secured in Christ through His grace Rather, as those who are redeemed through Christ's finished work on the cross, we are learning to live lives shaped by Christ, by the gospel, by the cross. And as we live out that life, we are to live it out before a watching world so that they see our good deeds, so that they see how Christ is transforming us. That, that we would live lives that provide an attractive alternative life to the ways of this world. Which leads us to the third matter I want to speak to, and that is our aim, what we strive towards. Through Christ, we are God's people. And as the people of God, we are to live out our lives, our sanctification before a watching world. Why? Why? 
Why not retreat to the wilderness? Why not retreat from the world? Look with me at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. We are called to live out our lives as disciples of Jesus in public view so that that we can demonstrate an alternative to the life of the world around us. There are broken, sinful, empty people all around us. The the way of life around us is is not a way of life that that brings joy or satisfaction or hope. All around us are people who, who know that their lives are a mess who know that they're desperate for hope. They might not say that, but they're seeking to distract themselves from those realities, seeking distraction in things, material things, in relationships, in money, in success, in alcohol, in drugs, in sex, and entertainment. Entertainment's huge in our world. People just distract themselves from the real stuff of life. Some choose to numb themselves with many of these same things, just to to numb the pain, the emptiness. But if you get them alone, if you get them in a moment of true honesty, there are so many around us who will acknowledge that they are miserable, that there is a deep, gnawing emptiness, that they are hungry for something and they don't know what. They're looking for hope. And by God's design, by God's design, he has planted his people in the midst of that world as an outpost of heaven, as men and women who are living lives shaped by Christ, shaped by the gospel, lives that are empowered by his grace so that we can model before a watching world an attractive alternative. It's not that we're any better than others around us. It's not, and we need to remember that to remember our desperate need for grace every day, moment by moment. We're, we're no different except that we have encountered God and His grace. We've encountered Christ and the cross. And so we are beggars who can point other beggars to where they'll find bread. As Peter writes in verse 10, we declare not our own praises, no. We declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We proclaim the forgiveness that we have received. We proclaim the hope of the gospel. We proclaim God's amazing grace for all who come. Grace Philip Yancey shares, recounts the heart, this heartbreaking story that was told to him by a friend who worked with a down and out in Chicago. He wrote this, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in one night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked her if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure naivety on her face. Church, she cried. 
Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. An absolutely horrific story. Hard to even hear. But let me ask you this question. Where can a woman like this go for hope? Where can anyone who is broken and despairing Where can they go when they're devastated by sin's destruction in their life? Where can they go as the church, as God's people? We are called to be a people who speak of God's grace, who proclaim God's grace, that we would be a community, a church, where no matter what, we would proclaim grace. Yes, we speak truth, we proclaim grace that the church would be a safe place for people who know their own wretchedness could come and find hope. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts the last verse in the message. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Let's live in such a way that those who are God's enemies, those who don't know Christ, might one day be standing shoulder to shoulder with us, glorifying God, praising God for his amazing grace. What a remarkable privilege, what a remarkable call we've been given that as sinners, wretched sinners who deserve only God's judgment, we have through the cross received grace, amazing grace. And now we're called to this privileged role of living out our life of faith before the world so that others might see the power of Christ in us, so that others might see the the greatness of God's grace so that, that one day, One day they will be celebrating with us shoulder to shoulder, glorifying God, declaring his praises. That together with us, they'll be part of that great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's our call. That's our aim, that's our mission, that is what we are about, living out our life as we seek to grow individually in intimacy with Christ, as we seek to to grow in obedience and holiness, we want others to see that and praise God. As we grow as a church, learning to love one another and care for one another and forgive one another and navigate the hard things together in community, not letting those difficulties break us apart, that, that others would look and they would see the power of, of the cross. That, that as God empowers us, we would, we would see God doing things through us that we could never imagine doing, not by our own strength, but by a boldness that is supernatural from His Holy Spirit, that others would see Christ and the cross. That is what we're called to. That is our mission. Back in December of 1990, I so enjoyed those moments with my brothers, sitting between them as we all laughed and just experienced joy. I had a season of life that had plenty of sadness. It was a moment of great joy. As Christ 
works in us as he shapes us to be men and women, young and old, as he shapes us as a community, as he fills us with a boldness that comes from him, we have the joy and privilege and the mission of demonstrating the power of his grace so that one day others will join us. They will know the joy that we have found in Christ, that they will rejoice and praise him, declaring his glory with us before the lamb that was slain. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is remarkable that you call us, that you choose us, and that you want to use us. And I pray right now, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, for myself, Lord, that you would move in us, that you would have your way in us. And God, we pray, we pray that that we would live out of the grace that you have shown us. And that those who are hurting and overwhelmed by their sin and brokenness would be drawn to you through what you are doing in us, Lord. That we would have the joy of seeing many others come to know you and praise you and give you glory. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to that call, to that mission, knowing that that you are with us always, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, but that it is by your presence in us that we go forth. We pray this in your name for your glory.